What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Kate O'Neill, an author, a speaker, someone dedicated to helping humanity prepare for a tech-driven future. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Really quickly, can you drop in a bit of your CV, a bit of background before we get into the chat about ethics, working with technology, and also talking about how you are building your own life around this sort of independent knowledge sharing? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, the quick, quick background is like I, I was a, a linguist by education, which was it's a really kind of fun part of my trajectory. I think that that informs a lot of my work. But then I found my way into technology. I did that because the web came about while I was in college and I was supervising the language laboratory at my university and built their first website. And then it turned out to be the first website for the university. And that got noticed by a guy at Toshiba in California. He recruited me to come build an intranet for them. And that started a stint in Silicon Valley, which led to me being one of the first 100 employees at Netflix. And so fast forward, I started my own agency years later. I worked for magazines.com, HCA, all these you know nice big companies. And uh, fast forward some more, <laughs> I'm here uh, doing this speaking, writing, you know, somewhat consulting type of independent lifestyle now. And it's it's been a really interesting sort of 25-year trajectory. <laughs> Do you recall what intrigued you about linguistics in the first place? Yeah, you know, I think I just was really interested in, in languages. And I, I think even just the concept that an idea could be represented by different words. Like the very earliest I can remember encountering that concept, it, it sort of blew my mind when it when it really sank in, the idea that like you're looking at a book and that book is referred to in one language as book and then by others as like livre or buch or whatever. And that was so fascinating to me that that was something that sort of simultaneously united human experience, that we all have language and ways to communicate, but divided our experience with the language we use and, and the words we use to describe things. And, and that inherently, I think it was a relatively early thought for me that if you have different words to describe things, then potentially you have different thoughts about those things. And so it was just a really engrossing kind of area for me. Mm. And, and it always has been. Is there a particular word that really sets up different types of thinking between cultures? I, mean, I think like the, even beyond words, like the, the grammar and structure of languages uh, sort of set up what lead at least you to think that there might be some differences. Like the fact that there are different numbers of cases in different languages. So, you know, the way we think about time and the passage of time and different genders that are assigned to nouns in different languages. So the way we think about the inherent properties of things. Um, you know, like, I think just even those two examples are really sort of vivid opportunities to let yourself think about what could it mean to people that they are intrinsically, you know, kind of growing up in a particular language and culture, if they're never exposed to another language or culture, the limitations of that are, are really interesting versus, you know, what it means to expose yourself to lots of different languages or lots of different cultures and what that could mean for the expansion of your thinking. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular academic or researcher in the linguistics field that really influenced you? 
I think when I started really reading about it and learning about it, you know, Chomsky became a really interesting figure to me. And he stayed an interesting figure because he's so uniquely maybe the most famous linguist in, in our current time and, you know, one of the most famous sort of academic activists of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's such an interesting character. Um, but there have been a lot of linguists throughout history, like um, uh, Worf and, and uh, the, the work that Worf did around the relationship between language and thought was something that really stuck with me when I was studying linguistics, that, that the language that you speak could shape the way you think. And again, that was something that had occurred to me at such a an in, young and impressionable age that I thought, this is exactly what makes what makes sense to me. And I have a lot of friends who are linguists who are, you know, kind of anti that whole thought, like, no, 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 that doesn't, those things don't have that kind of relationship in the brain. And that's fine. I like that there's dissent about that too. I think it's a really interesting thing that you can disagree about something that seems so fundamental to me. Mm. Are there ideas like that, that you discovered through the academic world that you've made utterly practical in your life? day-to-day? Yeah, you know, I've been fascinated with meaning just as a construct um, for decades. I mean, really, I'm I'm 45 now. And and even when I was a child, I remember, you know, like I said, my earliest kind of perception of language was, oh, these things have different words associated with them. And and that began to open this lens of um, the way we understand each other and the way we understand the world around us and how we use language to describe that and how we use the expression of ourselves to describe those things too. So meaning has been this really fascinating concept and construct for me. And I've used it in many, many ways throughout the work I've done, you know, kind of finding my way into technology and then finding my way from technology into associated or affiliated or kind of nearby fields like content strategy and um, information architecture and marketing and those sorts of things, those have always had for me an, a realm of meaning making about them or, or meaning seeking. And that's been a really important part of, of my work within those fields. So like, for example, marketing, um, I have always thought of as the the creation of meaning. You know, you're you're trying to figure out for a, a brand, you know, what its relationship is to the customers outside of that brand and what is the relationship between them that is meaningful. So I think of this construct in in linguistics or in the kind of theories of communication that there are fundamentally three parts to communication. There's the the message that the speaker or the intent that the speaker has in conveying something, and there's the message itself as a standalone construct, and then the message that the listener receives. So those three parts can be sort of analyzed or thought about as independent of one another. But of course, they are not independent of one another. There's a sense that they either have a lot of overlap between them or they don't. And where they have the most overlap is the most shared understanding. And that's where the meaning is. And I think there's a really easy parallel to draw between a company or a brand being the sort of speaker in that role and um, the customer being the sort of listener mm. in that in that sense. And the the message is either the the marketing message or the 
brand experience or whatever you would want to use in that model. But I think that's that's such a useful model. It's such a practical model for people in marketing to to think about how they're actually connecting with the people that they need to connect with and how to make that meaningful for them. Mm. So the, you have the intent of the message maker, you've got the said message and then the received message. And, and I guess through the large public known as the internet, the fourth thing might be the way that publicly you can interact with that message and, and kind of try to change its trajectory or question the intent in a way that messes with the three things that came before it, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, like it's like sometimes I, I feel like sometimes now if you say the word blue, other people go like, what, you don't like all the colors on the rainbow? And you're like, what do you, what do you, why are we even having that conversation? <laughs> Yeah, and I do. I do actually say when I whenever I share that uh, three parts model and talk about it in, in reference to marketing, I'll always say that there's also this kind of context circle that surrounds the entire thing. And so you know you can think of the three parts separately, and then maybe there's a a line you can draw through all those parts that talks about the alignment of them. You know, so so there's that piece as well. But that context circle is is a really important facet of the discussion too to your point that it's if it's happening if that discussion or that that interaction is happening in the context of you know twitter for example then there are these kind of constraints on it like it needs to be pithy and and have some sense of um well timeliness and timelessness at the same time which is such an interesting thing about twitter Mm -hmm. but but you know every every context will shape that that interaction differently and will shape the the opportunity for alignment differently. So it requires a different sort of trajectory of that intent to be able to reach the the listener differently. But yeah, I take your point too about the the changing uh, behaviors of of culture as well. It's it's funny, fun and funny, unless you're on the receiving end of it and are away from the phone or computer for a while. So linguistics got you to computers, computers got you to the internet, the internet got you to making your first website, your first website (laughs) got you to Silicon Valley and that got you to Netflix. That kind of run in a career, it's probably less doable now because a lot of us in the decade that you mentioned were early-ish to the Mm -hmm. internet, at least as it broadened its reach uh, beyond academia, do you ever feel just a little bit guilty about being able to stumble into this amazing career when so many of the the people that we would know trying to come up right now really have to fight to get their way in? No, I mean, that's that's an interesting take on it. I, I, I don't feel guilty because I feel like so much is about the early discovery and it's so much about figuring out how to make the most of the the resources in front of you. And I don't think that that's any different today. I think there's plenty of emerging technologies, emerging platforms and emerging knowledge that people today are coming up in the midst of. So, you know, the internet's not in its early, well, the internet wasn't in its infancy when you and I were young either. The the web was, but, um, you know, the web was still so new and malleable that yes, I and, and other people that, you and I know personally could become quote unquote pioneers within it because it was possible to do that. But, you know, there's still the opportunity to be pioneers of the the technology that is emerging today mm-hmm. and that will emerge tomorrow. So no, I don't think there's anything to feel the least bit guilty about. I think the and the the opposite of that is true for me. I encourage students, whenever I get a chance to do guest lectures on college campuses, I encourage them to sort of lighten up on themselves in terms of thinking 
in a linear way about like, I have to have exactly the right major now and I have to be doing exactly the right internship now so that I can set the path for my future career. And I go like, it's not going to be like that. <laughs> like mm. There are going to be things that are going to be presented to you as opportunities that you can't possibly anticipate now. So the best thing you can do for yourself is to just learn how to learn, you know, figure out what makes you sort of infinitely curious. And for me, you know, linguistics was the, the opportunity to figure out that meaning is what makes me infinitely curious, you know, meaning and how humans connect with one another. And it turns out that technology is just another way that humans connect with one another. And so that has become this kind of recurring theme throughout my career. But, you know, for any given person, it's going to be a different pathway and a different set of stimuli. So Mm. I think that that mindset is so important for people coming up in in their careers today is like just to maintain curiosity and flexibility about, you know, how they identify or how they define themselves because they're probably going to go through even more incarnations of their identity and like professional identities than even you and I. And I know we've both been through several. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why why do you think the college students you talk to, uh, so locked into a linear path versus the idea of education preparing you for potentially spontaneous opportunity? I think it's probably their parents and and the message from society in general is is kind of this, you know, kind of uptight idea of, you know, you got to be ready. You know, it's a big investment. College is a big investment. Like you have to make sure that you're coming out of it with a marketable degree and you have to make sure that you're going to be able to turn that into you know, something that produces ROI on your investment in college. And and that's not a completely wrong-headed way to think about it, I don't think, but I think it's it's only one piece of the way to think about it, which is, you know, I have a German degree <laughs> that has been absolutely not relevant to anything I've done since I graduated with my bachelor's. My My master's work was in linguistics and language development, which at least takes me in a more sort of abstract direction but i mean a ba in german <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, and then you know to end up here 25 years later working around the intersection of humanity and technology i mean i can see how german got me here but it takes a lot of explanation to mm-hmm. get there so i think you know that my, the social mindset the society mindset of getting your values worth out of college making sure you've chosen a major that's going to pay off is just unnecessary pressure. I mm. think, you know, the, the message should be much more about figuring out, you know, sort of who you are and what drives you, what makes you absolutely, you know, passionate with curiosity about things and mm. following that. So what's your thing? What's, when you think about like what the career you've built and the, the trajectory you've followed, like what is your like passionate curiosity? Oh, I think it really comes down to me not being sure about what life is, what what life's about and why I'm alive and trying to investigate humans, whether it's through interviews with rappers and graffiti artists or authors, speakers and strategy people. It's, it's, you know, I'm just trying to understand humanity and maybe that's because it's difficult to try to understand oneself. Yeah. And I think you can definitely bury yourself in exploring the world and people without actually sitting down and doing your own work. And I, I think sure. that's, that second part is where I'm at 
right now trying to do my own work and try to bring those two things together in a more honest and candid and uh, contributive, that's not a word, in a, in a contributing kind of way. Uh, but that's a, I feel like I haven't known you that long, but since I've known you, that's been very true of, of your, like you would say stage of life, I guess. But it, I, I wonder, is that just, do you feel like it might just be a perpetual stage of life? Like, will you always be someone who's in kind of self-reflection to be able to understand the world better? Yeah, but so there are little ideas that I didn't really think about growing up, which is one, as someone who has books of my own writing and who wrote for magazines as a teenager and then in my 20s who's got books of raps and poetry, I never thought of myself as a writer. And that's crazy. you know. And, and that's partly because people weren't around me going, oh, you're a writer. You could study that and maybe make a career out of it. If anything, I was shooed away from it because to study the arts or liberal arts meant that you were poor and would be poor <laughs> and would stay poor. And people who don't strive in life, they're, they're the ones who do that. That was a little bit of a message that was around me, not a strong one, just a little bit of a message. So, yeah, I can totally see the connections with everything I've, I've done since I was probably single digit in years mm-hmm. and now it's just trying to work out how to put that out into the world in a more savage coherent way which is uh <laughs> savage oh yeah I like no. that. <laughs> well i think to be honest to yourself and to stand up for yourself and what you want to do and to try to build a life around it it's pretty defiant nobody wants you yeah. to do that yeah that's fair yeah I, but i think there's also there's a learned uh resistance to that message too. I think you can, once you start sort of recognizing that you can resist societal programming in one dimension, I think it becomes easier to resist it across all dimensions. Mm. How was that journey for you? When did you start resisting? Uh, I don't know what started it. I I feel like there's just been so many different things. So um, I have this kind of list that I'll rattle off of like, it's almost alphabetical. Like I can go I'm atheist, bisexual, child free by choice, um, et cetera. Like I don't, I have to think about what D, E, and F would be, but I can get all the way down to like vegan and, you know, like all these different um, pieces of my lifestyle and my um, like intentional way of living are, are all things that I've had to choose that were not what was handed to me. They were not, you know, no one told me, that I should be child-free by choice. Quite the opposite. It was like, you know, the expectation is, especially as a woman, but I think just in general and in society that you're going to grow up, get married and have kids. Like that's just how that's going to go. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, object to the marriage part, although I, I, um, I have my own views on what marriage is or should be. The the child part, I just, I just had no inclination to having children. I had no instinct to do it. I like, I absolutely am thrilled that there are people out there who are thrilled about it because that means that I don't have to. <laughs> so <laughs> it gave me that freedom. And I think that freedom um, was a lot easier to choose because of other freedoms that I had already chosen for myself. And, and it made other freedoms safe and easy too. So I just think it's that kind of a pattern in life is like mm-hmm. once you sort of think for yourself and make your own decisions despite what anyone tells you, um, you find out that it's not that scary and that you can, you know, sort of clear a path ahead for you to to be and do whatever makes the most sense for you. Mm. And you call that choosing freedoms? I hadn't until this moment, but um, I mean, yeah, I guess 
I think of it as just mm, approaching life with as much awareness and reflection, self-reflection and honesty as possible. Like I don't, I don't want to just take the default path that everyone else is taking. And, and that some of it is not, I don't think it's entirely about being, you know, <laughs> contrary or something. I think it's that I, I don't want to commit myself to something that, that I haven't given some thought to and have decided, okay, that, that sounds good. I can do that. Or I can, I can agree that that's part of who I am or how I should be in the world. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on marriage? So um, I thought of marriage as something that was kind of an unnecessary institution until a certain point was like, um, so I'm, I'm widowed and remarried. Um, and when my late husband and I were approaching the idea of marriage, we thought, well, you know, it's not really necessary. We're not going to have kids. That's one of the reasons that people get married. Uh, what seems important about it is that you're announcing a commitment to the world. Like there certainly do seem to be, you know, parts of the, the intentionality of saying we intend to be together that help reinforce that commitment. So we thought about doing a commitment ceremony, uh, like in the days before same-sex couples could get married, a lot of same-sex couples chose commitment ceremonies. And so we thought, even though we were not a same-sex couple, since I was bi, I thought that was a really appropriate way to sort of shun my heterosexual privilege and also, you know, participate in a parallel way to what a lot of my peers were doing. And and at the same time, benefit from that social communication that says we have an intention of being together and we hope that you'll support us. We hope that you'll, you know, support our commitment to each other. So we planned that. And then at a certain point, other practical matters made it just make more sense to just go ahead and, and get married. And we did a <laughs> we did a, a courthouse or a city hall courthouse wedding in Chicago the day that they were dying the river green. Uh, so that was a really fun sort of vis- visceral visual memory of that whole mm. experience. I and think that's the, called St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? Yeah, St. Patrick's Day. And it was yeah. the, it's always the Saturday before the actual St. Patrick's Day. If the 17th doesn't fall on a Saturday, St. Chicago will do their parade the Saturday before. So we got married on, I guess it was the 14th of March. And it was, you know, several days before. But it just happened to be that Saturday was when they were dying the river green. So that was, that was a pretty cool memory. And the fact that we were in this courthouse room the thing was so cheaply plywood paneled and the guy who was the judge was wearing this cheap polyester robe that was really ill-fitting. And this, the whole thing was so hilariously absurd that we just thought it was, we thought it was great. It was like a, for us as absurdists, we were just kind of like, this fits, you know, <laughs> we we're choosing to do this thing that we recognize has value but is also kind of an illusion or you know has some arbitrariness about it and the arbitrariness of that setting felt perfect and absurd (laughs) and hilarious do you think absurdism is freedom or is it running from reality Hmm. i don't know that's an interesting construct i don't know which which one makes more sense of that postulated dichotomy but i think of absurdity more as it relates to meaning. Like I think of meaning and absurdity as having a really interesting relationship with one another that they, they don't exactly exist 
in opposition to one another. Cause you can do things like um, within art. I always talk about the example of um, the treachery of images, you know, the famous Magritte, this is not a pipe painting as being an example of it's a deeply meaningful statement and also totally absurd. So he's, you know, doing a brilliant job of blending those kind of constructs in one there. But I do think that more, more often absurdity is what happens when you aren't intentional about meaning. So like, you know, we create these kind of absurd environments around us by not being very clear about what is meaningful. So freedom versus what was the other? Running away from reality. Yeah, I don't know. Those don't fit in my model of absurdity. What do you think? What's your take on it? Oh, I love absurdism as a way to start meaning. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think apart, sometimes absurdism is an idea trying to fight its way into the world. And it only does so because the person looking at it or listening to it is like, oh, I know what that means. So I, I sort of see absurdism as a, a birthing process. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, it can definitely be used as a way to deflect and to avoid. But uh, no, I like it as, as like the start of meaning. Yeah, I think it's a way of putting boundaries around meaning too, around saying um, this is something that, um, if, if you're intentional about absurdity, which is, I think there's a difference there. Like, like if, it's, if it's intentional absurdity, then it can be the beginning of meaning. That is how I think of it. If you're intentionally saying like, this is what I deem as absurd, then you have inherently defined some boundary of meaning, right? You're mm -hmm. saying like, this is, this, is what, this is what I see as the world, like a, 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 a ridiculous reflection of the world in some way. Mm. With, with the work that you're doing now, especially with the writing and the speaking, is the word philosopher a correct word for what you're doing? Yeah, it comes up a lot. A lot of um, a lot of folks when they see my keynote or read my books, um, it's funny. It's like there's one um, on Goodreads. There's one one star review of Tech Humanist, and it says uh, this is just a book of philosophy or something like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> and I just think that's so hilarious because you know all the other five star reviews are like, you know, this challenged my thinking. It got me thinking in a totally new way about technology or whatever. And like, you know, you can't please everybody, obviously. Um, but I think for sure philosophy for better or worse does seem like it applies to what I'm doing. Is that criticism just saying, I don't know how to use this book. I thought it was an instruction manual. Yeah, probably, oh. probably. And, and, you know, maybe they have been traumatized by philosophy at some point in their life. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> I do think that, that often, you know, my tendency as a thinker, as a writer, as a speaker is to move toward the abstract. Like I, I, I live in nuance and abstraction. Like that's where I'm most comfortable. Mm -hmm. Whenever I'm forced to get practical or, you know, have concrete examples, that's where, I mean, I can do it. I, I, I you know, have the mental discipline to do it, but, um, but it's not my preference. My preference is to continue working in the abstract and in the nuance. So it, it, cer it certainly reveals itself in my work, mm, I think. Mm. And that is a, that's like a fair criticism is that there are not often enough like practical ex takeaways or practical examples. So I work really hard on that. I make sure, you know, when I do a talk for like a group of executives or something that there's 
um, practical takeaways that they can use. And that's, that's like me acknowledging <laughs> that the way to respect my audience is to give them that. But again, like my preference, my way of being within my work is to stay in this like world of abstraction and theory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I liked it there too. It's comfortable. Yeah. Also, I think philosophy is trauma. Uh, let's chat <laughs> specifically about like what's on your mind right now. When you think about your mission to help humanity prepare for a tech-driven future, what are three things that are most on your mind with that goal, with that topic? Yeah, there's a lot. I actually have a, um, so one of the ways in which I do my work is that I have a big mind map of all these different topics. And the mind map that I have that's kind of at the most macro level about my work has probably something like 50 different nodes on it about the areas that I feel like are immediate extensions of the impact of tech on, on humanity. And so I think things like, you know, the future of work and the future of jobs this is a huge area. This is where I think if you, when people at say a, a random cocktail party hear about the work that I'm doing, that's where people's minds go immediately. They go like, are the robots replacing us? You know, <laughs> is automation taking over? And, and I think that's, it speaks to some existential questions that we have about, our value or our worth as as beings if we are not working and mm -hmm. so you know that that's a really cr critical part of the work there's also i think you know the, you can apply future of to so many different areas like future of retail future of communication future of healthcare like every discipline every industry every area like has its own future trajectory that's worth considering from through the lens of how technology impacts humanity. So I, I have writing and, and um, you know, kind of uh, ponderings at least on all of those areas. But for me, I think what we're facing imminently is this data and privacy moment. You know, like I feel like we, we lived in a, a point for the last 10 years or so of increasing data collection, increasing data usage, and slowly increasing awareness of how much data was being collected and used like at, at a public level. And then we sort of hit this moment a year or two ago maybe when the public really started to take notice. And so now I feel like we're on the cusp of what is probably going to be an even much larger discussion over the next few years about what that means in terms of, you know, accountability for companies that are using and collecting data for individuals, you know, in terms of uh, appropriate and um, sort of savvy participation in social media and online platforms and gadgets, you know, like phones and wearables and so on, but also home automation and, and the kinds of technology we let into our lives. And of course, regulation, you know, what is it going to look like from a policy perspective? So there's some really big areas that are um, macro topics within that space as well. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the first one, which is uh -huh. the, fu the future of work or the future of jobs, and mm -hmm. we, we think about worth as humans, and we go back to the earlier conversation about how for people who are fortunate enough to go to college, often they're taught or groomed to believe that there's a linear path, you go to college, you get the job, you get the career, and that that is how your worth and value are realized. You must have to talk to people about what their worth is beyond a job, beyond a yeah. career. How do you, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think of the concept of value as being a really important part of this discussion. So we, we use the understanding of value to talk about pricing. We use the understanding of value to talk about, you know, the, the exchange of goods and services. But value is also very much informed by meaning and what we value and how we value it comes so much from our understanding of what is meaningful to us. And what is meaningful to us um, is often informed by what we feel like we are able to contribute and what we're able to accomplish. And so I think there's an awful lot of unpacking to do about, you know, what we gain from and um, how we understand our, our role in, in employment, like what, what work means to us, what jobs mean to us. You know, it's, it's usually, it's so often the first question people ask when they meet each other, right? Like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And it's even names that people use, like throughout, throughout history and across cultures and generations, there have been like, you know, baker, judge, like, you know, carpenter, whatever, all these names that are family surnames, but that come from some, you know, predecessor's job. Mm-hmm. So there, it's like intrinsically part of our identity that, you know, jobs are, are a huge facet of how we understand ourselves and the world and, and what contribution looks like. So I think the, the thing that needs to, to be part of this discussion is how to really understand ourselves in a world that, that work is, is less a part of, right? Like the jobs are less a part of. I think there's still work. There's still, no matter what happens with automation um, and, and the displacement and replacement of human jobs, mm-hmm. I think there's still going to be this concept of work. Like we still have work to do and we still have ways to interact with each other where we're creating value and extracting value and understanding the value that we each have to each other. And so that's, I think, the, the important work to be done is, is really getting at a model of human relationships and human civilization that understands value and meaning without jobs being as critical a part of that, but still honors work as a piece of, of the discussion. Yeah, it's, you know, you've probably read similar research that one main fear that people have as they get older is that they're not useful and that could right. be socially useful, but I guess we've adopted work as a proxy or as the only way to feel useful in certain parts of the world. And it is funny talking to people about their careers or jobs because you might start with by saying, yeah, let's let's talk about your career or job and someone talks and then you're like, why do you want to talk about your career or your job? And then there's a gl- glitch in the system and you try to reach for a deeper meaning so that whatever they want to talk about in the future about their career and the job can actually rest on something that's more stable other than uh, I've got a CV, I've got a portfolio, I've got debt to pay and these are all really important things. I've got you know, people in the family with health issues that I need to take care of and need to pay for plus all the materialistic things that people have. But it's it's a kind of shallower conversation to talk about a career versus the reason for having a career and where the career is emanating from. Do you notice that glitch in the system as you push for a deeper meaning when you talk to people? Yeah, and even in, in myself, and I would imagine this might be true for you too, that I, I think I have to catch myself from time to time feeling like I, I have to I have to evaluate all of the patterns of jobs and work too. Like the work I do now is so different structurally from the kind of work that I would have done for, say, like HCA, like a big, big employer. And and there are times at which it makes more sense for me to use the daytime on a, on a weekday to run errands or something like that than it does to sit at my desk in my home office and make calls or do emails 
because I live in New York and, you know, things get busy on the weekends. And, and so I have the flexibility, I might as well use it and then allocate other time to catch up on things. But even that notion that I should, you know, deflect that time and, and sort of budget it appropriately and whatever. I mean, if I can get my job done, if I can do the work I need to do in a fewer number of hours than, you know, say 40, then that's sort of an ideal situation. And, and it's so strange how, how like programmed those things are into my head that I'm supposed to feel guilty or irresponsible or <laughs> something like that for doing these things like running an errand in the middle of a, a day, a weekday, or, you know, working some different number of hours than 40. So it's, it's an odd way of, of um, wrestling with social programming and, and the understanding of what is meaningful, what's purposeful, what's intentional, like how am I, how am I in the world? And, and I know that I'm deeply driven by this you know, mission to, to really help do what I can to help humanity prepare for this tech-driven future. I know that that manifests itself in my writing and my speaking and the, the, the uh, advising that I do with companies and, and other work too. And so, you know, but you still have to live. You still have to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. run to the drugstore and pick up your prescription or whatever. So it's, it's an interesting thing to try to understand a, a sort of lifestyle model for that too. And how does it look in a world where, and I'm not not working. I'm only trying to understand, you know, the, the, what a meaningful life looks like with a different kind of job, not with no job. Yeah. So I can see how challenging it is going to be for people, you know, when, when we're looking at not having jobs. Totally, totally. Uh, why, does the, why does this mission mean so much to you? You know, I think, it, I think the, the future of work and future of jobs piece of the discussion is one of the most um, meaningful parts of, the, of it because of this whole discussion we've just had. And, and for me, the, the work of helping humanity prepare for this tech-driven future has to do with helping people have a sense of hope and hoping hoping that we can create a a world that isn't dystopia right like the, i think so much of the the narrative about the future is a dystopian one like it's so easy to go to the sort of sci-fi dystopian narratives and what i feel is that there's a a ton of opportunity to explore a more proactive and responsible and involved way to to be with our future that isn't utopia it doesn't like automatically flip the switch and you know now that we're not talking about dystopia we're talking about utopia but it's it's just a continued steady state of humans existing in a world that that has the potential to you know have meaningful experiences for us and has the potential for us to you know have meaningful human connections with each other and you know potentially has the opportunity to use technology in ways that enhance those meaningful experiences and relationships. So I think part of it is about helping foster this more balanced narrative, more hopeful, more empowered narrative. And part of it is that I just think there's a just a huge opportunity, especially when it comes to the way businesses deal with, the way, you know, sort of corporations deal with technology, that that's where the majority of, of um, technological innovation comes from, is from, you know, sort of corporations making investments in, in technology and bringing them to mass market uh, access. So I want there to be a framework for how to do that in a, a meaningful, responsible way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one more about yeah. this. So why, why, do you, why do you think hope, and specifically hope for humanity, is 
something that you're building your life on? Where does it come from psychologically? Well, I, I think there's probably a number of factors. I think certainly I got inspired by my my husband's suicide, my first husband's suicide. I think that really spoke to me about the need for for hope. Like there's a a chance to look at the world and say, you know, it's messed up. Like there are plenty of things that are messed up about it without despairing of of any hope. You know, I think what I what I take from having observed, you know, his departure from the world and, you know, certainly it's a lot, a lot more nuanced and complicated than to just reduce it to, you know, lack of hope. But I think that's part of any suicide story mm. is like the larger message that it then conveys to me is there's got to be a way to look at the world that you can see it for all its flaws and you can see all of them things that could be better and yet, you know, aren't and still have some sense that that's not going to be the end of it all. And and that's why I think like for me, the parallel of, you know, the, the fact that so much about the, the, the typical way in which people talk about the future is this sort of dystopian narrative is really uh, unfortunate. And I, I think there's a, a much more, there's a robust way to talk about the future that isn't dystopian. And I think it's important for all of our mental health and for the, the preservation of humanity, not to mention the betterment of humanity, um, that we, we learn a better way to talk about the future. Mm. Uh, and, and not to be ungentle with this question, but mm. do you, like uh, ideas like mental health and, and suicide or self-harm, are they explicit in a lot of your talks and in your writing, or are they just simmering in you and you, you, you push through more uh, commonly accepted material to, to make the points in a, in, a, in a more subtle way? I have used, uh, I have used more subtle, more sort of conventional language and examples when I'm writing books like Tech Humanist and Pixels in Place. But I do have, prior to Pixels in Place and Tech Humanist, I did write a memoir called Surviving Death. And that was very much <clears throat> about the fact that in the decade of my 30s, I lost both my father and my husband. And, you know, I had this kind of overarching experience of that decade that was about, you know, surviving death. And, and for me, uh, it, was a, it was an experience that I had that was filled with gratitude and reflection and meaning seeking, um, which is not at all the way that I've ever heard anyone talk about grief or loss. And so I felt like this was a, a counterpoint to the existing narrative that I really wanted to contribute. So that that writing and that thought does exist out there, and I, I have you know put it out into the world. I haven't necessarily um, written too much that's connecting you know those observations with the tech humanist insights. Mm -hmm. the, I've written blog posts that have done things like that, and and I am really committed to the integrity of, of um, not compartmentalizing our lives quite as much as we tend to do. Like, I think it's really important that we do carry over personal insights and experiences into our professional observations and, and uh, our work. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's, there's a huge opportunity for us to take the learnings that we have on a personal level and go like, well, but you, you could see how this maybe applies on a broader scale. And, and, if we do that more, if we bring, you know, the, the very uh, deeply personal and, and emotional and, um, you know, human observations that we make about the world over into the work we create that is uh, 
corporate and brand focused and so on in these abstractions of, of um, you know, companies that are abstractions of people. I think we do a better job of humanizing that, so, which is what we need. Yeah, I, I really feel. I, I agree. I agree. But I, I guess when you then think about people requesting or criticizing books for not being practical enough, does a voice emerge in your head where you're like, I'm trying to talk about how to be alive. And you just yeah. give you like three tips to do <laughs> when you start at your desk at 9am on Monday. Does, is there a little voice in your head like that? A little bit. Yeah. I feel like um, I, I have, that's why I can laugh about, you know, the criticism that it's a book of philosophy. Cause I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for that person that he or she was disappointed, but I'm not feeling bad about it. I feel like, um, I certainly don't feel as if the, all the work I've ever done is the best it could have ever been, but I, I do it with integrity and I'm always trying to do the best I can in the moment. So I, I think that putting work out there that's, that's genuinely reflective and tries to genuinely connect dots and, and say, you know, these are the insights that I could provide at this moment in time. You know, I think there's value in that. And, and I, I hope that it's perceived as valuable. And I know that in, to some degree it has been. So I, I think I'm fine with that. I'm fine with, with sort of connecting those dots, putting it out there and saying, look, here's, here's my thinking. Here's the dots I've connected. And you know, maybe somebody else comes along and says, based on this and based on perhaps other sources, I can see these practical takeaways. And maybe that's the world they live in as a more practical one but that's not my space <laughs> no 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 and and here's, here's the thing by way of a final question and i don't mean this in a cheeky way i am wondering if we could give people a few practical tips for how to explore their meaning you know like we, i think both of us have done a lot of reflection maybe tip one is write a book but uh, and do a whole bunch of talks but like what are practical ways that people can explore this if they're used to being compartmentalized if they haven't done the work if they're nervous about doing the work yeah so that actually you know you said write a book i, I would even say it doesn't have to be, be you don't have to con uh, conceptualize it as a book, but I always encourage people to write manifestos. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's such a useful tool if you have any instinct as a writer whatsoever, and almost, almost everyone does, I think, at, at some level, if you get away from the self-criticism, that setting yourself down with the intention of writing a manifesto means that you are intentionally channeling what matters the most to you and mm -hmm. saying it out loud or, you know, in the form of writing out loud. And that gets at sort of the second sort of practical tip, I guess, is to me, um, the, so, so the first practical tip is write a manifesto. And the second is to recognize that in, in my work, I, I actually use this term, uh, this phrase a lot, which is that meaning is what matters. Like in every, form of meaning that I understand. Uh, so, you know, things like significance and status and s semantics and purpose and truth and existential understanding and things like that, all of those pertain to what matters at, at whatever level. And so just at a, at a um, kind of summary practical level, I guess, is to think not so much about meaning in all its forms, but to think about what matters, what matters to you. And that's always going to be, I think, a, a way to get closer to the priorities and the purpose and the values for anything, like any decision that you're faced with, any, any sort of um, self-reflection that you're doing. I think as long as you can come back to asking yourself, 
what truly matters in this moment, then you're getting closer to what's meaningful inherently. I agree. And it's interesting because we started off thinking we were going to talk about that intersection between humanity and technology. And we ended <laughs> up talking about what truly matters, which is the, uh, the human experience. Yes. <laughs> like just, yeah. just told stories. That's what matters. I think that's what matters to both of us very much. I agree. Yeah. And, and the conversations that you and I have had in the past have always led to that. So I think, I think it's a wonderful discussion to be able to have on recording. So thank you, Mark, for letting me do this. Pleasure. Kate O'Neill, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am most prolific on Twitter, and that's Kate O, K-A-T-E-O. You can also find me at my website, koinsights.com. Beautiful. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Mark. Peace.